Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Amelia Kahaney, author of the new novel, All the Best Liars. Best-selling writer Courtney Summers wrote about All the Best Liars, a searing and provocative exploration of friendship, desire, envy, and obsession of girls pushed to the very edge. Amelia Kahaney has written a beautifully twisted and unsparing thriller that will have readers holding their breath until its fiery conclusion. Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, All the Best Liars, how would you describe the novel? I would call it uh, a coming-of-age novel wrapped inside a thriller, or maybe a thriller wrapped inside a coming-of-age novel. I'm not sure which. Um, It's about inequality, uh, economic inequality, rather, um, betrayal, and, of course, murder. But at the heart of the book, uh, it is really a story about childhood friendships and what happens when those bonds start to fray. Uh, I think when we're kids, friendships are kind of the defining romances of our lives. And I wanted to look at what it means when our friends move on without us and kind of sit with the pain of that rejection a little bit. Um, Of course, uh, where it ends up leading in this case is quite violent. the actual story of the novel, uh, it's uh, about three girls who are about to graduate from high school. Their names are Sydney, Rain, and Brianna. And they grow up together in the California desert in a fictional fly spec town called Termico, which is on the edge, maybe 45 minutes away or so, of those really beautiful towns that everyone's heard of, Palm Springs, Palm Desert. Um, and the Termico Three, as they're called in the book, live in uh, flimsy kind of prefab houses with their families, uh, who are all struggling financially. Uh, and the kids really rely on and care about each other. And one by one, um, some of the family's economic circumstances shift for the better. And so over the years, two of the girls leave, uh, for a better neighborhood. And this causes all kinds of fractures. Uh, at the start of the book, we are with our one remaining Termico resident, Sydney, as she learns that one of the other two girls, Brianna, has died in a fire. And all we know at the start of the book is that Sydney went to a party the night before. Uh, she did things that she regrets, things that she shouldn't have done, uh, but she's having trouble remembering exactly what happened. Um, we know, also know that Sydney's brother recently got home from a year in prison. And very soon in the book, it becomes apparent to Sydney that the third friend, Rain, is missing. Uh, she's not responding to texts, and Rain hasn't even been in touch with her mother since the night of the fire. So the rest of the book jumps back and forth in time between per- the perspectives of all three of the girls, and the reader ends up putting together the pieces of what happened to these friendships in the past and how they all connect to the fire. Meanwhile, in the present, Sydney is dealing with the police who start to close in on her as a suspect, and she's really up against the wall and the stakes are quite high. And not to reveal any spoilers, but of course, nothing is what it first appears to be. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write All the Best Liars? So All the Best Liars took it's a it's a pretty breezy read um but it took a really long time for me to write 
Um, I was thinking about it the other day, like, when did I actually write that first scene? And it was all the way back in 2014, um, which, my God, is is a long time ago now. <laughs> uh, extra long because of the pandemic, right? Which sure. has stretched time out for us. Um, so in 2014, this musician named Lord had her first album. I think maybe that album came out the year before. And I was really into it. Um, and she had one song called Tennis Courts. And the first scene that I wrote of the novel ended up being kids hanging out near a sort of abandoned hotel on a, a bleached out tennis court. Um, and there's one line from the song. It's just sort of a throwaway line. I fall apart with all my heart and you can watch from your window. It's sort of a, a song about kids who are playing roles that aren't really the true them and other people kind of watching it. And I was thinking a lot about trying to write my first thriller and thinking a lot about that role of the watcher. Um, and it really, it really stuck with me and kind of got me going. And the other thing that inspired the book, um, which uh, in which the setting is really important in this particular book, The California Desert is almost like a character, um, is I spent a little bit of time. My aunt and uncle bought a, a home in Palm Springs. And I went there and I was kind of feeling my way into what this book was going to be. And I drove, ended up driving with my cousin to a place I always wanted to visit, which is called the Salton Sea. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it I haven't. was You haven't. Okay. So the California desert, obviously, there's not a lot of bodies of water there. And so a long time ago, I think close to 100 years ago, maybe in the 20s or 30s, some developer got the idea to put a huge man-made lake uh, near Palm Springs. And they envisioned it as like a vacation community, right? It was, it was quite large. Um, but what has happened to it is it's become this ecological nightmare. Um, the, the salinity was off in the lake. And when you go there now, it's just abandoned houses, sort of abandoned shacks. Um, and you arrive at the lake and it smells terrible. And soon you see why, um, and the reason is that everything in the lake is dead. There's all kinds of dead fish, um, dead birds. And we went out there um, and it was so removed from the Palm Springs that I knew, which is a beautiful, charming place. Um, it was it was full of, you know, squalor and and uh, struggle, the, the whole town around it. And by the time I went home that day, I, I really kind of had the the grain of the story i i knew that i wanted to have um friends living outside of this uh this town of palm springs um having a having a a harder life um and i wanted to look at what it would mean if one of them left that's interesting so what was it about lord's album and music that interested you and inspired you i just found her work at the time, um, and, and maybe still today, but really her first album, um, to be so impressively poetic and moody. Um, and she was so young, um, at the time that it came out, it really felt like a work of her heart. Um, so I listened to the album many, many times and, and many times as I was writing the book, um, just to kind of sink myself back in because, you know, teen life for me, uh, happened a while ago. So 
when I need to get into a younger mindset, I, I really find that music kind of gets me there. Um, and especially people like Lord. Now, now I really like Billie Eilish, who's, you know, another very young musician. <laughs> and and I, I was going to ask that, are there other things that you do to try to capture that teenage voice of the, you know, now 2020s? And, you know, since you're writing about teenagers, do you have teenagers read a manuscript? What, what, what things do you do? I don't have teenagers read a manuscript because I, I would be so worried that so much of it um, would need to shift <laughs> um, to kind of accommodate how quickly language is always changing, especially among young people. And my, my worry with that, with including too much kind of really topical of the moment teen stuff, is that by the time the book comes out, it's out of date again. Sure. Um, so it's sort of this balance of trying to get into the mindset of, I'm sorry if you're hearing sirens. That's okay. Uh, it's New York City. I understand. Yeah, New York City. Um, yeah. I'm so sorry about that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a real balance of trying to get into a teen mindset without being too topical. Um, because especially today, trends move so quickly with social media. But for example, um, I needed to think really hard about uh, the narrative possibilities and also just the emotional feeling of always being on display, which was not really a part of my growing up. I mean, it was, of course, all teens feel that they're always being looked at, right? Teens are so kind of self-conscious, but this uh, this way that teens grow up on social media today. I, I think that that, you know, it's a safe assumption that in five years, that feeling will be the same. But certain slang words, you know, I, I, I try to put in and then I end up taking out in later drafts. Sure. I'm curious, has anyone at your publisher contacted Lord's Camp to let them know about the book? That is a great question. <laughs> I don't think so, but we have a couple more weeks before it comes out. So I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that. I, I guess I'm thinking with my my public relations cap since I do PR for for my day job. Uh huh. <laughs> that is really smart. I I yeah. wonder if she would respond. I mean, that would I don't be, know. You never know. You never so, know. So, so what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Uh, well, I uh knew that I wanted to write, and I got an MFA uh, at Brooklyn College many years ago. And I was in my MFA, I sort of didn't have the courage to write a novel. I just didn't. It, it felt so overwhelming, the thought of it. And um, after I got my MFA, I ended up having a baby pretty quickly. And I was teaching part time and I was looking around for work um, and I fell into ghostwriting. And I ended up ghostwriting three novels that were meant for a middle grades audience, so a little bit younger than the the novels that I ended up writing later. Um, and the way that it worked, it was for a very well known writer who I think contractually I, I still can't name. Sure. Um, but I would be given very detailed plot outlines, and I would be given a really really narrow window to write the book. And so all of my usual like psychological fears uh in writing i kind of had to put them away because i had to write so much every day i had to write a novel essentially a draft in 8 weeks and then later i would be given a month to kind of clean things up in a second draft 
Um, but this was, this was revelatory for me just to kind of see that I could do it. And so that, that was my first three books was, was ghostwriting. And then, um, I decided because I had experience in the YA world at that point to, um, try to write kind of a dystopia. Um, it's sort of a dystopia, um, superhero origin story. And that became my first novel series um that was called the brokenhearted and yeah i was able to sell that on writing 100 pages and then giving a detailed outline and that was with harper collins and then and then and then there you have it that's it, it's such a coincidence you're the second author i've interviewed today who co- who ghost wrote middle grade novels really oh, yes <laughs> The, the, I, it's, it goes to show how many of them must be ghostwritten. Yeah, the the other the other one was uh, the other author is Chandler Baker, who wrote a novel called The Husbands. But anyway, oh, I'll um, have that, to the, I'll take a look at that. Yeah, that 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 was that was interesting. Just um, so so I'm curious about your MFA experience. How was that for you? Um, I mean, you said you didn't feel up to writing a novel, but but what was the what was the overall MFA experience like for you? It was a really special time for me. Uh, it was a really small program. There were only 12 or 13 of us. And we got to work with the novelist Michael Cunningham, uh, who, of course, wrote The Hours uh, and all kinds of other, you know, because we're in Brooklyn, which seems to breed writers. Uh, we just got to work with such amazing people. Um, Colson Whitehead, Stacey Durasmo, Susan Choi, uh, a few others, Joshua Hankin. Um, and most of us, for whatever reason, in my cohort, were writing short stories at that time. I think there might have been one other who, or one person who was really writing a novel. But yeah, we, we, we are, most of us, still in touch today. And we actually had a writing group together for about 10 years after the fact. Um, so it, it, it really was a transformative experience and a transformative experience for my writing of course um i if i look back at stories from semester 1 to the end of the program uh i really i really grew a lot stretched myself that's great so are you working on a new novel now i am i am trying i i had really hoped that i would finish the first draft before my book comes out in 2 weeks and i'm i'm so close you know every day i'm like oh Maybe maybe it'll be one more week. Maybe it'll be one more week. But <laughs> I I have uh, over a hundred thousand words of um, an adult. I guess it's a I guess it's a thriller. It might be a, a described as a satirical thriller, um, and I'm really really excited about it. So it's kind of kept the nerves of publication for all the best liars at bay. <laughs> That's great. Well, good luck with that. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Gosh, I think lately, uh, the thing that has been working best for me, um, at least for the current book that I'm writing, I, I have a kind of fanatical system and, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of explain it to you. Um, it sure. involves it involves turning off the internet at a set time every day. I use a program called Freedom and I I program it to shut down everything from usually most days it's from 8:30 when my son leaves um until 10:30 in the morning. So so that's my 2-hour block. 
And I always put on the same music, which is instrumental music. Um, and this kind of seems to trigger uh, the ability in me to get started, because for me, that's the hardest thing is to get started. Um, and then at the end of the writing session, I have a spreadsheet and I put my number, my word count number into the spreadsheet. And so every day I can see the number grow. And I have found this really, really calming, this this funky system that I have. Um, I guess, you know, big picture advice, try to keep anxiety out of the picture. I For me, it's the hardest it's the hardest thing about writing, um, especially novels. You, you never know where things are going to go that day. And um, I think that uh, just focusing on the output and the numbers for me and the way that they accrue really kind of takes the agony of the story out of the picture. That's great. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Uh, so many. Let's see. Right now, I am listening to uh, a book called Dial A for Aunties. It's by Jesse Q. Sutanto. Uh, it is such a fun story. It's it's a very light and frothy story about um, needing to dispose of a dead body. Um, and the way that the main character disposes of the dead body is with a crew of her aunties, uh, who are all Chinese um, and it's it's just the the funnest book. So that's that's been a delight. Um, I also loved Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder, uh, which is about a mother of a young child who turns into a dog, quite literally. Uh, <laughs> and this year in January, a big accomplishment for me was finishing Middle March. I had tried so many times to read it and failed so many times, and uh, I finally got through it, and it was just a a sublime reading experience. I, I feel I'm a changed person. So I recommend to anyone and everyone, if you have a vague leaning toward reading <laughs> Middlemarch, give it a try. Um, it will take you so far away from the pandemic uh, that you will be delighted. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? They can find me so many places. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm A. Kahaney on those two. Oh, and also I'm at A. Kahaney on Twitter. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Amelia Kahaney, author of the new novel, All the Best Liars. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Amelia, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Great. I did too. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of All the Best Liars by Amelia Kahaney, narrated by Carissa Vacker, available wherever audiobooks are sold. You think you know when you've hit bottom, when things have gotten complicated and sad in a way you'll never be able to fix. But the truth is, you don't have any idea how much worse it can get. By the time I had drifted most of the way down, washed up on a Monday morning in the last seat of the lurching yellow school bus with the aftertaste of vomit still on my tongue, my life had blown apart so completely that I couldn't see the shape of it anymore. I was friendless, abandoned, dumped, humiliated, more alone than I'd ever been. It was the ass end of senior year, far too late in the life cycle of high school to assume any of what was broken could be fixed before all of us scattered forever. 
All I had to do was get through two more weeks of classes. Soon, so soon, high school and all the people in it would be a memory I could spend the rest of my life repressing. Starting with last night. As the bus sighed to life, flashes of the party glimmered. Bright sparkles of shame that died away as quickly as they flared to life. Pieces of the night were already missing. Things I would never get back. All I had were a few garbled moments glimpsed through smeared glass. The pills I took, the drinks I swallowed, the rage I felt stumbling out of that enormous house. The hurt on Rain's crumpled face. Rain, who always believed I was good. Who never knew the petty, sour girl I'd let myself become. But why had I been so furious? And what had I said to hurt her so? I remembered only snatches of the fight we'd had. The feel of screaming at each other in that big, dim bedroom. How it had been cathartic and terrible all at once. I closed my eyes and tried to remember, groping for the details of the fight. But like a word you can't quite think of until hours after you need it, it was just out of reach. My memory skipped from the kerosene burn of whatever I'd swigged in the party's packed kitchen to the sting of gravel against my skin. The ice-cold desert that had almost swallowed me up. Spider, my brother, cursing glow under his breath on the way home. Blood dripping down my forearms, staining the car's upholstery. It was almost a coherent narrative. Almost, but not quite. Rocketing down the mountain towards school, all I knew for sure was that I was alone, ashamed, a rube. Abandoned in the end even by my brother, who had vanished somewhere in the night. That morning before six, I'd staggered to his room, opened his door to tell him how drug sick I was, to guilt him into driving me to school, but his bed was empty and the car was gone. Now I curled into my and Rain's old seat, the seat we'd been sitting in since elementary school. Last one on the left, best seat in the house. You had your pick when you got on first. We were always first on and last off, coming as we did from the farthest away. Termico was such a tiny dot on the map that we didn't have our own schools. So down the mountain we went, into Palm Springs or Palm Desert, where the hotels were, the expensive houses with their swimming pools, the malls, the movie theaters, and the schools. My index finger traced the ballpoint graffiti we had drawn on the seat in front of us some years back. Hearts, teardrops, Celtic knots, stylized versions of our names. Sid and Rain forever, I had written in sixth grade, or was it seventh? God, did it feel true. What was that expression? We plan and God laughs? Miss Roberta pulled the bus over for its next stop and the door hissed open. A pack of freshmen and sophomores whose names I didn't know got on, along with two junior boys, Kenny Alvarez and Grant Matthews, who lived in a world of role-playing games so complex and all-encompassing that it was like they existed on some other planet. I turned up my headphones and looked out the window at the sun-baked hills that stretched out past the highway, their brown softness like the curved backs of giant sleeping cats. Skrillex filled my ears, anxious, unromantic zombie tracks. The sun was already strong enough at 7.35 a.m. to make the fingerprinted glass hot to the touch. 
I touched it anyway, wanting to feel the singe of it. Two more weeks of school and one lonely summer before I could leave this place behind. In the fall, I would head to Miami University, which sounded like beaches and volleyball, but was actually a mid-sized college in Oxford, Ohio, where my aunt, Debbie, lived. Miami had given me the best financial aid package out of all the places I applied. Mom was so relieved when I agreed to live in Debbie's spare room after the college promised 20 hours of work study on top of the tuition waiver. Your future is all decided now, Mom had declared. It may have been the most depressing thing she'd ever said to me. But Miami may as well have been in Florida for how badly I longed for it as a vacation from what life here had become. Ohio felt far enough away for me to become a different person. No more ghosts of former friends. No more sweaty afternoons pressed up against a boy who only disappointed me. Debbie's condo's guest room overlooked a scrap metal yard and a croaker, and beyond that, a gray slice of a river. There, it would just be me, my bitten-down fingernails, and my lonely dreams. Maybe that was the lesson of all this, that life was only manageable if you lived it alone. Last night proved how capable I was of hurting people I loved. I shuddered, still groping for details that refused to come. Whatever I'd said, it was bad. Bad enough that I'd spent all night apologizing and Rain still wasn't answering me. I scrolled through all my texts to her. 1.41 a.m. I'm sorry, I didn't mean what I said. 2.04 a.m. Please write back and tell me you're okay. 2.47 a.m. Tell me you hate me. Tell me you'll never forgive me. Just say something. 5.20 a.m. Have you really given up on us entirely? Aren't I allowed to be upset just this once? I'd always been the reliable, unflappable one. The girl who measured her words out carefully, who thought before she spoke. Or I used to be. This horrible year had changed me enough that some days I didn't quite recognize myself. I tried again. Still waiting. Hello? I watched the screen, looking for the three dots to prove Rain was at least getting my texts, even if she refused to reply. None appeared. When the bus finally pulled into the parking lot of Valley Sands High, I forced myself up on shaking legs. I didn't bother to look out the bus window when we parked, so when I shuffled down the stairs and saw hundreds of kids clustered in the front courtyard, I lost my breath with the shock of it. In the desert, people don't usually hang around outside after March or April. But today, even though it was already 95 degrees outside, most of the school was out front. Everyone was weirdly quiet, staring down at their phones or talking in low, somber voices. Lots of kids were crying. The sour nervousness in my stomach bubbled into full-blown nausea. Something bad had happened.